What's my pet peeve? Messy cat litter. Those furry little pads turn into cat litter super spreaders, leaving the already been used litter scattered across the floor for your bare feet to discover. The solution? World's best cat litter's new load tracking and dust control. It's quick clumping, made from corn so it doesn't stick to paws like clay, and specially formulated to stay where it belongs, in the box. Switch to World's Best Cat Litter for a happier, less littered home. We know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors. Luckily, Kroger Free Pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees. Whether it's extra buns for the barbecue or those chips you just can't quit, start your cart with the Kroger app. Kroger, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply, subject to availability. It's the big $10 sale, so mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiaka, bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiaka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiaka. Hello, my visionary friends. Thank you for joining us on another exciting adventure into future possibilities. This is Mission Evolution, where we share innovative thoughts and information with today's leading experts, bringing evolutionary solutions to today's unique challenges. You, my treasured audience, are a very important part of this discussion. Email info at missionevolution.org with any comments or questions. We will address them on the very next show. So take notes, sit back, and enjoy. This hour, we'll address the power of heart-based medicine. It's been over a year since the foundation of our collective reality was ripped away, replaced by the fear and uncertainty of navigating a worldwide pandemic. Most of us are more than ready to move on. But before we can push forward, we need to address some burning questions. What lasting impact has this experience had on us, our children, and our children's children? How has our faith in medicine and government been affected? What have we learned from COVID-19 that can transform medicine? How can we heal from this encounter? But most importantly, how can we use the experience to evolve into a new way of being in the world? With us this hour to address fear, love, and medicine is Dr. Jan Bonhoeffer, a global expert on infectious diseases and vaccine safety, pediatrician, and former emergency physician. Dr. Bonhoeffer serves as Professor of Pediatrics, Infectious Diseases, and Vaccines in the University of Basel Children's Hospital, Switzerland. As a former consultant with the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control, he co-authored more than 120 peer-reviewed articles in medical journals. He is the author of the new book, Dare to Care, How to Survive and Thrive in Today's Medical World, and founder of the nonprofit foundation, Heart-Based Medicine. His website, heartbasedmedicine.org. Dr. Bonhoeffer, thanks for joining us on Mission Evolution. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. We're about covering the, the, the world here. I'm morning, uh, studios afternoon, and you're evening. Yes. So how, how is it there in Switzerland? Oh, it's beautiful. We had a we had a very April-like week with lots of, um, you know, 30 degrees centigrade, so really warm, and then suddenly five degrees centigrade, so we're all in jackets and and hats, and uh, then there's a bit of rain and snow, and right now there's sunshine in the evening. So <laughs> welcome <laughs> to bit, April in Switzerland. <laughs> a little bit of it all, yeah, for sure. So as we attempt to move forward for the pandemic, vaccinations would appear to hold our best hope for returning to normal. As a former consultant with WHO and the CDC, who uh, uh, led a great uh, global vaccine safety initiative, what questions do you think we should be asking about COVID-19? vaccines 
Huh. Well, many questions to be asked, and I guess they kind of almost change by the hour. <laughs> so this has been unprecedented, what we've seen in terms of vaccine development, speed delivery, um, programming around the world. So there are probably more questions than, than answers still, um, in spite of the fact that um, the program in the U.S., for example, has now almost reached half of the population. So. That's pretty exciting. How are you doing in Switzerland with it? Um, it's similar, but it's slower. So everything in Switzerland is a little bit more neutral and a little bit more slow. So, um, but it's it's rolling out and it's going well. There's always the question of availability and of, um, you know, what is the distribution going to be? And uh, but we do get vaccines coming in, and the vaccine program is is being rolled out as planned. Wonderful. Wonderful. So you've spoken of the pandemic of fear. Would you go into that a little bit for us? Yeah. So very much in line of one of the kind of underlying questions of of your of your podcast is kind of what can we learn? Um, what can we learn here? And to me, the main lesson learned is that this pandemic has shown to us. It has brought to light to what degree um, our sense of being ill and our handling of dying and death, how we deal with this as a society, um, is based on fear. So how much fear is involved here? We've seen fear as a dominant emotion in the press. We've seen it from the very beginning, the fear around the, the disease itself and how it spreads and who is affected and whether the ICUs are going to be overwhelmed or not. And then it's turned into what is the fear if this doesn't stop and then the fear around the vaccine and is it going to come and then the safe the fear around the safety and so we are learning how much our health care system is kind of a disease care system and is fundamentally ba based on on fear so how does fear being a constant fear and i think a lot of us have been through this time how does that impact our physical health Oh, dramatically. <laughs> um, so when we're in a state of negative thought, when we're in a state of, uh, when we're in, an, in a fearful outlook, um, we will activate part of our immune system that is um, towards fighting illness. So we could say, well, that's great. But we're not only activating our immune system in this way, but we're also activating our entire nervous system to be in fight and flight mode. And that then, if this is undue, if this is taking us over, um, what we see is that the stress reactions will actually decrease the immune responses and they will uh, create all, kind of come with all sorts of health issues that we see in the peak version in, for example, traumatic stress disorders. So whenever there's something that is that is really threatening us, then this is where we see the responses. So we see we don't sleep very well. There's less appetite. We're saving on self-care. Um, so there's there's a lot of behavioral change that that we all go through is a normal response. Um, when we are in fear mode, everything is kind of reduced to the minimum survival mode, and that then has a long tail end of consequences. But not only not only health consequences on our body, but just imagine now what happened through all the let's say, regulations that have been put in place in order to protect us and their consequences. So as a pediatrician, for example, I see now many families where, particularly in lower socioeconomic status, where both parents are working and need to work and several jobs are closing and uh, companies are closing and so the existence of families is threatened. And so we see that the kids are less nourished and we see a dramatic increase in domestic violence and we see a dramatic increase in child abuse. So this is very concerning. And these are kind of secondary um, issues that we'll see as health consequences from both our fear and from the way that we've handled it. The, um, I think the real issue for me personally is we know this has impacted us, and we all kind of have a little bit of PTSD around it. Mm. But what about our children? And what about our children's children? How is this impacting them when they're around us and we're in fear and the world is suddenly uh, seen, seen as an unsafe place? 
yeah, it's it's deep. It's very deeply rooted. So when we particularly look at the younger children, when we look at toddlers, so babies, infants and toddlers, um, all the impressions that they get now um, are forming their lives. It's not just an experience during a lifetime. It's it's an it's an experience that really burns deeply on, te- on, on their hard disk <laughs> or on the CD. <laughs> Um, it really changes their behavior. And we see this every day. As a, as a pediatrician, I see this every day. For example, um, let's say when I examined a child, when I come to a room and I examine a child, when I was a, a fir- an early resident, so a young resident, then um, it happened regularly that babies were crying when I came in because I was just so stressed out. <laughs> and so they, they felt, oh, this is not good news if I'm already ill and now somebody comes in. But then during the rest of my career, this has changed. And so it was very easy and I learned how to deal with it. And I learned to use my facial expressions and, and the energy that I use in the room that, that, I, that I have, that I hold when I enter the room, is very different. Um, so they feel relaxed and comforted and good. Now, ever since I'm wearing a mask, <laughs> this has changed again. So we had to learn completely new behaviors as, as a lot of the facial recognition that that babies and, and toddlers need in order to read our faces and to see whether we're friend or or enemy um, this this is not there anymore so they're so learning. even the masks have been impacting the children oh yes oh, that's just amazing isn't it now um, when we're in fear we're out of the heart right we're in the back brain fight or flight aggression <laughs> um, and so when we're when we're in fear, we're not in our heart, and they're the tools that you've been using. It sounds like to calm children is coming from your heart. So, is this also impacting children when the parents are out of heart, the people around them are out of heart? How can they connect? Absolutely, particularly when you are at an age where language is is music, but doesn't have the same meaning as it has for for adults. Then, um, what children read is is the energy. So a baby knows very well when mommy is tired or is 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 happy or you know is energized or worried or concerned. The energy that that the emotion that the that the mother has and holds will immediately be picked up by the children. And and it's the same is strongest with the mother usually, but then it's also with everybody around. Children are very sensitive to what's the what's the vibe, if you want to use that term, around them. Is it, what does it feel like and they have been now exposed to an energy of fear and distancing and they've learned that this is normal and they're not growing up that hugging is normal and that shaking hands is normal and that kissing is normal, that you know, distance is normal. This is a very new paradigm. We will need to so, see in the next years what it means. So the social distancing is impacting the poor little rascals as well. Yes, tremendously. Imagine you want to go play. <laughs> And then you have to wear a mask, and then you don't want to wear a mask. But then mommy tells you, you have to, either you wear a mask or you can't go to the playground. <laughs> yeah, Or you can't even go to the playground with or without mask because there's lockdown and it's just prohibited. You can't go. And then mm. how do you explain this to a three-year-old? It just doesn't make sense to any degree. So they're so it's isolated. How about the older children, the ones that um, knew what life was like before COVID and before all these restrictions? How are they being impacted? Strongly, again. Um, so look at adolescents. You know, in a in a phase of life when they're when you're trying to figure out how can I can kind of get my feet on the ground and how can I you know be stable on my own and how can I take responsibility and how can I reach out into this world and start to create my own my own story and create my own life and learn how to do this. And now you're completely blocked out. You can't meet with friends. You can't socialize. You, everything is digital. You can't meet in school. You can't do any sports, you can't, so many, many of the things that that are really helpful, activities that are helpful for adolescents are not available. So we're just about a ti- out of time in this segment, but what's digital done to heart connection? You're not in the proximity. I mean, is it oh. interfering? Oh, yeah. <laughs> We've learned new skills. We've learned how to interact through digital media. We've learned how to connect and, and how to feel the other person and kind of get a sense of what's going on. But I think everybody, everybody is longing for connection. Everybody's longing for actual meeting with people, real meeting. And we all know what what the difference is. So this 
going through this is actually pointed out um, the the importance of heart that heart connection. Yeah, it's fundamental to our lives. I mean, we know what happens when we when we isolate babies; they just simply die. Mm-hmm. If you, it's just it's it's just that. So we we're now not doing that. <laughs> not everybody's dying right now, but somehow everybody's dying a little bit inside and wishing to recuperate and to come back and re kind of return to a normal human life with normal human interactions. Well, it is that time for that commercial break. Dr. Bonhoeffer and I will return shortly. So you stay right there. Coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. To our faithful and thoughtful audience, we really value your opinion and would love to hear from you. What do you think about being bringing heart into medicine? Email me at info at missionevolution.org and give me your thoughts or questions so we can all share them in the very next show. This in from a member of our audience regarding the episode entitled Personal Awakening for Collective Transformation. JC states, I loved this episode. It was way past time that we tend to our interior landscape rather than blaming it on the world for our perceived woes. Thanks for contacting us, JC. Changing the outside by healing the inside sure makes sense to me. I'm glad you enjoyed Michael Sapero's message. He was a joy to have on the show. Curious, dear audience? Visit our archives at missionevolution.org. Listen to the episode entitled Personal Awakening for Collective Transformation. And let us know what you think. With us this hour discussing the power of love in medicine is Dr. Jan Bonhoeffer. His website, heartbasedmedicine.org. Dr. Bonhoeffer, we were talking about um, how when we're in fear and um, not in heart, it really impacts everyone around us. What does it look like? What do you see happening in mass where everybody out there is in fear? Is, is everyone changing as a result? And how is that impacting the health? Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I believe we see this. Um, I see this certainly in, in my office, but we, I think everybody can see it. Everybody who's allowed to go out at this point. <laughs> um, we're closing our our hearts, we're isolating ourselves. And this is not the most enjoyable human state to be in. So what happens is that we're starting to gradually, gradually constrict. And that means our outreach is less, our creativity is less, our our connection with others is less. Our we're we're kind of going into our cocoons. And partially this can be turned into, you know, something something enjoyable for a while but when that lasts too long then a sense of isolation um, comes up and that's when we go into depression and we go into frustration and despair and longing and projections and that usually then impacts on our relations to others so we see this really strongly in families right now that are very stressed by all the regulations and interventions and and burdens on um, on our lives. How can, um, what's, what's the best advice you have for parents to kind of turn that around so they can be present in the heart for their children? Yeah, being present. I think that's the, that's the key. And if you, this means not only just the body being next to the other, but to be actually fully present and fully aware and awake and available for our kids. So it is, it is sharing love. <laughs> for for kids, they say love is spelled T-I-M-E. <laughs> so, 
if we have if we have that time that we take and we really make it quality time where the kids feel the love and the appreciation and how important they are to us and how dear they are to us that is what is nourishing particularly at the times when they can't see their friends it's um it's certainly a difficult time you also speak of the effects of doom scrolling during the pandemic what is doom scrolling and how is it affecting us well it's kind of this this uh, funnel that you can get into, right? So when things are getting worse and worse and worse, then then that's where our attention goes. And, and don't we all know this? Like when we when we go to, let's say you want to go shopping and you're looking for shoes, then suddenly everybody's wearing shoes, right? <laughs> so so that's where our attention goes. And if we're concerned about something, if we're fear driven, then we're looking for stories that are actually confirming our inner state. So we're saying, oh, now I understand why I'm so fearful because all of these things are happening. And then we're just, you know, we go, we're Googling and YouTubing and social mediaing and, and more and more we uh, confirm the, the despair and the, the negative state that the world is around us in a way to explain our inner state. And uh, that's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we do have a choice point here where we can actually step out of this spiral going downwards and seeing everything more and more negative. There's a fine line, though, between that and going into denial, yes? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, I guess that's the, that's the mechanisms that our brain has. That's the language of the brain. It's kind of aggression, suppression, ignoring, and running away. <laughs> um, that's that's the methods that the that our brain has, if you like, the cognitive part. If we look at our heart's language, that's different though. Then we're available. We can look at the reality. We can accept reality and see where is our choice point. Where is the point where we can take down the mask and where we can pause and be present and engage. I like that word choice point. Um, would you go into that a little bit more for us? What's the choice point? <laughs> um, the sense of me, so the I am suffering. When I'm saying I am suffering, this me that we're talking about, this is the perspective or this is the voice of one personality part of me which is active right now. So a little bit like a, a theater ensemble where one role is stepping on on, on the podium and the, has the limelight, is claiming the limelight. And so and that part of us is active and that's what we attach our single me to but that's not reality in, in reality we have many personality parts and we have a choice to see that at every given moment we have different personality parts in us and so we can take for example the perspective of the one who is fearful and that's excellent to some degree it's good that we have that part that is fearful otherwise we would probably do a lot of silly things <laughs> but then the, at the same time there are other parts in us that are trusting for example and we can see that they exist at the same time and we have that choice point maybe that's the only choice we have in life <laughs> to choose between what you're presenting to choose how, what perspective I'm taking and with the perspective I'm taking, it changes my perception, whether it is colored by fear or by trust, for example. And changing my perception changes the reality around me because my behavior will lead me to do things that are reinforcing what I'm currently believing in. So if we're coming from our back brain and we're in fear, fight or flight, aggression, uh, logic is not real available to us. We take facts, A, there's a pandemic out there, mm -hmm. but then do we make a story around them that may or may not be, be true that our perception runs off of? Yeah, exactly. So the, depending on what part is active, we'll create a story. So we will, for example, we have the urge to understand oh, why do we have this pandemic, okay? or what, what is it, where does it go? So we want to know about the past, uh, where is it coming from, and we want to know where it's going. We want to know about the future. And both are not fully available to us, usually. So what we're left with is the present moment. How can we use the, the power of stories to help our children and ourselves through these times? Oh, they're extremely powerful. So telling stories, I guess, is one of the oldest um, 
human ways of learning <laughs> and and children particularly let's say at the age of sort of four to eight they're they're really open to this like in their magical phases and when they're really when when everything is available and and speaking in images and metaphors and stories is is very strong um, there's a possibility to identify with the different roles in the story and so we can actually feel into what these different perspectives are like so it's very powerful it's an excellent way in how parents can now um, shape the way children perceive the state of isolation if we make creative stories with heart versus fear-based stories can it ease our way and the children's way oh yes <laughs> um, and it's interesting you're asking both because we know that, for example, sharing love or forgiving others has a really strong effect on the others, but it almost has a bigger effect on ourselves. So giving love and forgiving others um, has a very strong effect on ourselves. So when we share stories with the intention to heal, to console, to create a positive outlook, to create an environment of safety and trust, we are part of this. We have to take that inner perspective. And once we do, then this has changed ourselves. Do you think that we actually create a different um, existence and outcome based on the stories that we choose to tell ourselves and each other? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so we see this at all ends. You see this at high-performance sports. <laughs> there will be... There will be no, there will be nobody uh, running for the gold medal for the Olympic medals and uh, reaffirming to themselves before the the race that I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to make it, I'm going to lose. <laughs> so it makes a huge difference whether we are kind of whether we use positive affirmations, for example, or not. But much deeper than positive affirmations is, do we, are we able to connect with our hearts? in a space of stillness that is a trusted space and is an open space and is a vulnerable space and are we strong enough do we care do we do we dare <laughs> um do we dare to be vulnerable and to receive the next if you like inspiration so what to do as a next step do you feel that the inspiration comes from stepping out of fear and into heart Yes, when we're in fight and flight mode, if we're in fear mode, um, the bandwidth of inspiration is really narrow and it's usually, uh, if, if we use the term intuition, for example, then there is one very fine line, one stream of intuition is available, um, but it's usually a, an experience-based type of intuition. If we're really going into a state of relaxation, then there's a whole range of different kinds of inspirations or intuition routes available to us that, that are certainly not there when we're in fight and flight mode or when we're in sympathetic overdrive. So intuition when you're in fight or flight is more um, um, danger-based versus creative? Yeah, I guess it, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. So it depends on how we, how we determine creativity. I guess the, the creativity is more focused. It's really very targeted at, at survival, for example, um, or at, at the stress management. And um, it, is, it, it is very hard to be actually open at these moments to, for, for insights that are not crafted by ourselves but that are kind of coming out of the blue, that are coming out of left field. <laughs> We're saying, oh, where did that come from? And then suddenly there's clarity. So these, there, there are different kinds of intuitions and, and there is a, there's a rich um, portal that may inform us that is not available to us when we're in focus lock in a state of, of fear. Do you think that, that that portal that you're speaking about is more like the unified field or where all knowledge is stored? Yeah, so the unified field or the knowing field are excellent terms for this. Um, these are these are ways to talk about something that I have difficulties finding words for, <laughs> but uh, I think they point in the right direction. <laughs> There's certainly something that is bigger than us and ourselves, 
um, there's we're certainly part of a of a field um, where we are only one tiny element of, and um, it has proven useful to me and and helpful and consoling and in many ways, <laughs> um, just alive, to accept that there's something much bigger than I am and and to trust in that. And isn't that what what's needed today is the ability to find new information and new solutions to our unique problems. Absolutely. When I compare, for example, let's say as a scientist, so I worked for 20 years as a as a vaccinologist. And so, yes, there were many questions and I thought I was very creative and I think I was, <laughs> but in a in a way that was very narrow, in a very narrow bandwidth in terms of we're going to have to pick up on this on the other side of a quick pause. Dr. Bonhoeffer and I will return to our discussion shortly, so you stay right there. This is Mission Evolution, coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com. This is Mission Evolution. Did you know our entire leading past, leading edge, past information packed episode collection is available to listen or download? With our compliments, visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. To find out more about me, Gwilda Wiecka, and the other things I offer, visit www.findyourpathhome.com. Our guest this hour is Dr. Jan Bonhoeffer. His website, heartbasedmedicine.org. We were just getting in, Dr. Bonhoeffer, we were just getting into how, um, you know, as you're working with the different scientific things that you're doing, um, accessing that unified field or intuition um, to a knowledge base larger than our own can really make a difference. Would you continue with that thought, please? Yeah, thank you. So, Creativity can be in stressful situations. So I remember, for example, the H1N1 pandemic, and and uh, one of my roles was in Europe just to um, be part of um, evaluating the safety of the vaccines. So we had to be kind of monitor, develop a monitoring system that doesn't didn't exist. So it was like inventing mm -hmm. the parachute on the way down. So there are <laughs> things where where certainly creativity is is needed, um, but it was a very narrow kind of creativity. When I compare this to not being in stress mode, when I compare this to when I am relaxed, then I'm actually able to hear, um, let's say, more silent um, pieces of information. I'm, I'm able to hear inspirations and, and recognize information that is available to me that I don't see when I'm driving so fast. So it's, it's a little bit like driving a car with 180 miles an hour. It's very hard to see the tree next to you. If you're taking it a little slower, suddenly you actually appreciate the environment that you're living in, and there's so much to learn. Do you get different kinds of information? Say, for instance, when you're um, you know, in the fight or flight trying to desperately find a solution, you can, you're saying that you can access um, the, um, the unified field for information you didn't necessarily have personally? Yeah. That's that's certainly a way. So I guess when you look at the history of science, or let's say, let's take the medical science for, for that matter, then a lot of the inventions were not made, um, were not constructed, if you like. A lot of the really fundamental insights were not constructed. And they, they happened to those that were actually looking for an answer. Usually they were actually looking for something else. <laughs> and then by chance, by kind of by the by, they were going, oh, whoa, what is this? <laughs> so, so Repurposing people, at its finest, yes? Yeah. So, so quite often actually stepping out of the way in trying to do something is more helpful than, than pursuing it harder and harder. That's something that is one of the fundamental things that I believe needs to change about our healthcare system is that the idea of working harder and longer hours and straining the staff more and, you know, what all of these ideas that come from a... Um, paternalistic, um, military language driven environment, <laughs> um, uh, that is 
that is I don't see that that's where the future of of medicine is going to be. I don't see that that's the kind of healthcare that next generations are going to want and uh, receive. I can't help but notice I've been um, in and out of the doctor a couple of times, um, not for anything major, just catching up once the non-essentials were opened back up. But my poor docs are really not in a good way. I mean, one doctor, she I always remembered her as being very enthusiastic and up. She staggers into the room and she puts her head in her hands and she says, I don't know why I got into this profession. What's going on with our doctors? <laughs> As the, the chief editor of the journal um, Psychology Today has, has written an article called The Healers Are Hurting. And I feel mm -hmm. that's a really beautiful title. Um, what is it? What do we do with our next generation of doctors if we are recognizing that by the time they sit their final exams, more than 50% have signs and symptoms of burnout? What do we do with our healthcare providers if 70% are recommending their kids and their children not to go into this profession? Is this really the kind of healthcare that we want to create? I feel not. So right now, healthcare professionals, starting with this spark, with this inner motivation, with this inner flame to do something meaningful and, and helpful and, and contributing, um, ending up in a, in a machinery that um, doesn't really support this initial motivation. And at the end, it leads to healthcare professionals being frustrated, going into depression and burnout and suicide. What, what is it that we, have, that we have a profession that is the healthcare profession and it has the highest rate of suicides? What are we That's doing here? <laughs> There, therein lies a great question. Um, I have a, a doctor friend, and he told me, and I don't know how it is where you are, but he says it seems like that when you went into medical school, you come in all, you know, gung ho and full of altruism, and and it's almost like that they intentionally beat that out of you because they feel that that's not going to serve you. Have you experienced that um, in Switzerland? Oh, absolutely, and and I think I've I've been traveling to, I don't know, pretty much all countries around the planet and whatever colleagues I talk to, it's the same story. This is a, this is a, a global issue that we're, the, the way that we see medicine as an objective science and the way that we're then transmitting or transporting the ideas of, of objective science assessment, scientific assessment into the consulting room is, is, a, is flawed. It's a, it, we're betraying ourselves and we're betraying our patients. <laughs> it's uh, any kind of emotion, any kind of subjective experience or, or evaluation of what is going on is basically from a purely scientific point of view, introducing bias. <laughs> so therefore, when you, when you feel care for a patient, oh, beware, it's introducing bias, you're becoming non-objective. <laughs> and what is the patient looking for? to be cared for primarily as a human being and not really being dealt with by a technician. And what is it that the healthcare professional is looking for? Isn't it a beautiful experience to actually take part in a healing experience rather than being some knowledge provider or some, you know, broker of, of medicines, but to actually take part in a therapeutic alliance? So this is what we're missing out. This is uh, this is what I hope medicine will evolve to, to integrate this part and to see that subjectivity and, and being a human being doesn't actually interfere with providing health care, but it actually improves it. It improves our professionalism rather than being in contrast or, or in conflict with it. We, we speak of adding bias if we dare enter our heart and bring caring into the exam room, yet doesn't that cold introduce a bias of its own, clam up the patient and make them um, feel less open and supported? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's exactly. So being, being disconnected, being divorced from the heart is probably the most uh, it's probably the, the strongest signal we can send to somebody not, to not trust us. <laughs> so we have to play very hard on the authority side to compensate for that. So if we, if we actually opened our hearts, we would be trusted more naturally, and then we don't have to work so hard on the authority side. So we can kind of relax on all ends, and that would save energy and it would help everybody. 
And hasn't uh, having to be the ultimate authority and never wrong been the bane of, of uh, medicine for the doctors? Oh, such a great question. <laughs> it's the, uh, it's really what is in the way of healing to me is the, the arrogance that we have learned. And it's a very fine line. So, you know, if you, let's say you're a surgeon, it takes a bit of humph to be able to, to stick a knife into somebody else's body. And so, so you kind of need that edge to be able to do that. But then if you stick your ego to it, if you attach your ego to it, and you, be, you start to believe in a kind of heroic figure who's always strong, then what ends up with is that at some point there is a sense of emptiness coming up and there's a sense of like, where is that initial motivation? Where is that spark? And wow, how did I become a, a robot in the, in the machinery? And it isn't really fulfilling to me anymore what I'm doing as this heroic self-image is essentially empty. And so then we find ourselves in frustration and depression and burnout, but we still stick to the stigma of having to be the strong one helping others. And that is then really blocking um, healthcare professionals to look for help, to seek help and, and to, to turn and change. And also, doesn't it interfere with their ability to be helpful? Yes, um, because it's, it's a very egocentric or self-centered worldview. It's a very arrogant worldview that just because you, dear patient, provide some information for me to recognize a pattern so that I can make a diagnosis and then I know what the treatment is and you just sit tight and I'm going to solve it for you, it's completely missing anything <laughs> that the patient is looking for. We're disempowering the patients by, by, playing, by playing strong. And that's where a lot is to be learned is we, we could actually learn from the coaches, if you like, <laughs> and and to actually ask patients, what is it that you believe you need? What is it that you think? And they may not call the right drug name or the right surgical intervention or <laughs> whatever, but they can, they can point us in the right direction. And that's actually what all the old foxes that are, you know, for a long time in medical care and really care for patients, that's what they're doing. That's a lot of the frustration of the young residents is then you're doing everything according to textbook and standard operating procedure and algorithm. And then, then the old folks comes along and ask the patient a question like, hey, how are you? And then suddenly a whole different story is being told. So More, more input, why, why more intel. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I have to say, following the money. Now, again, I don't know what the insurance companies are like in Switzerland or the interaction between insurance and healthcare. But while the doctors are busy trying to save lives here in the States, the insurance companies took over and are running medicine. And it's money-based, corporate-based, not heart-based. Are you seeing that there? And what do you see as the solution to that? Yeah, it's increasing. Um, it's increasing all over the all over the planet. And Part of it is that a privatized healthcare system is driven on by the baseline and sometimes even by stakeholder interests. And that is that is the end of medicine to me. That's like you, you just nobody in their right minds wants to provide healthcare in such a system. Um, when when the financial aspects or the quality control parameters and measures are outweighing any sense of being human and caring. This is when it becomes dangerous, and that's what we see. Um, so a lot of those measures are trying to, um, they claim to try and save lives, but in many ways what we call efficiency is actually just making it cheaper, <laughs> making it more cost effective. So we see this all over the place. That doesn't mean that state-run systems, um, so public health systems, are the magic solution. Um, there's also problems with that. I believe we have to go back to the drawing board and see how we can rethink healthcare in a way that is not run on on resources. And it's going to be difficult seeing how the whole world right now seems to be run on resources, yes? It is, but there are ways. Um, so let's just take a very small, very tiny example um, and of course, we need resources in order to do things. So it's not that everything should be free. That that would be foolish. But the question is, what is driving it? What is our what is what aspect of our work has right of way? So we're, we're all humans. And let, for example, in 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 the town that I'm working in, um, we can provide healthcare as physicians, but we can we can also prescribe medication. 
but it's absolutely not allowed to sell any medication, any drugs, any any supplements, anything. Okay, so basically there's a clear division between the doctor and the pharmacist. So the doctor is there to advise independently of making revenue of something that they're selling. So this is this is an important part. And there are many ways in in which this principle could be applied in order to really see that the decisions that are made concerning the lives of our, our of our friends and brothers is actually not in any way informed by whether this creates revenue for me or not. Beautiful. Well, it is that magic moment again. It's time for another commercial break. Dr. Bonhoeffer and I will be back shortly to continue our discussion, so don't leave us now. This is Mission Evolution, coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I love to hear from our audience. Your thoughts are very important to me. To suggest a topic or guest that you think would be of interest, email us at info at missionevolution.org. I'm sure we would all enjoy them. To find out more about me, Gwilda Wiyaka, my school, and the other evolutionary tools we offer, visit www.findyourpathhome.com. With us this hour, sharing thoughts with we're sharing thoughts with Jan Bonhoeffer, Dr. Jan Bonhoeffer. His website is www.heartbasedmedicine.org. Um, we were just getting into how we can make um, take the money running the show out of medicine. How do you think that would change the face of medicine and what what our docs go through? Because it feels to me like um, they're really being abused by the system the way it is. Yeah, many colleagues feel like this. Um, it depends on where you are. In some in some places, it's more bearable than in others, and a lot depends on on who is running the institution. Um, from a business perspective, um, physicians are part of the cost model, and so the less we have, the better. And the more they work, and the longer hours they do, and the more patients they see per time, in particular. Um, will increase the revenue. And that is not in line with quality in healthcare, and that is not in line with actually supporting the staff that is bringing the revenue for the hospital. So ignoring the fact sort of the system so far plays on the fact that there's enough so that those that are not, you know, those just 50% <laughs> that have uh, that have burnout symptoms and and live in depression and 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 in substance abuse and it's it's quite uh, impressive. So as long as the system ignores this fact, um, we will be able to run it in the way. And installing kind of communication programs or any other kind of band aids is not going to help. We will have to. It. I believe this will not be a top down change. This will have to be a bottom up change. And it will have to be the healthcare providers, the healthcare professionals, um, raising their voices and getting organized in a in a much stronger way. So, do you, is there some provision uh, for to see that happen? Um, are you working on that? Well, in my in my humble way, yes. So, um, I'm not politically active. I was politically active in in several ways, but um, I believe that. What is at the heart of healing is is love. I feel that love is the fundamental healing force. And this is what I've learned after 25 years of being at the bedside and comparing this to working in global health and policy. And um, unless we start to realize this and unless we start to fully embrace this and learn what it means to run a system where this is an integral part, uh, we will continue to fail we will continue to not 
show up in the best version that we can. And when we look at medical errors, for example, as one of the primary cause of mortality now in the country, we can write policies, we can write more regulations and standard operating procedures and quality outcome metrics, but we can also remember that if we actually care about someone, we're much less likely to make mistakes. But in order to care, we have to have the time and we need to be allowed to actually relate to those that we care for. And as long as we are driven by time and stress and money, um, it will be very difficult to allow this care to really take on. I feel that if we run a system that is that allows heart-based medicine next to evidence-based medicine, it will be even more interesting for everybody, including those who run the financial part of it. They will see that a lot of the problems that now need to be dealt with don't need to be dealt with anymore. So it seems you're saying um, that the heart-based approach really needs to infiltrate all levels. Yes, I feel that's that's the only way. So if we actually allow ourselves to remember where we come from and to remember why we do this and to remember that we're human beings in the first place, that is what will bring probably the most fundamental change to medicine and will really evolve the way that we that we do medicine right now. It there's nothing wrong with an objectified perspective on nature and the body. There's much that we've learned and there's a lot of things that we can now do that we couldn't and there's a lot of ways we can save lives that we weren't able to do so 200 years ago. But it's time to evolve from that. It's time to move to the next level and to reintegrate that level of care that really everybody is looking for. And we just need to start to actually to to dare to say that. <laughs> it's so many colleagues that are professors or in high positions that I ask to talk about this and they actually agree, but only kind of whispering and and not being able to say it in public. Well, it's like it's taboo. <laughs> yeah, we need to just find that courage that it's okay to, yeah, what I just said. <laughs> Tell us about what you call the disease of non-love. Hmm. <laughs> well, this was a this was an image like as an infectious disease <laughs> physician, um, the much bigger pandemic that is going on, I feel, than, than the one of a microorganism traveling the world from China um, is one where everybody is infected with. And it is one that also the healthcare professionals are infected with. And that is that virus, if you like, in quotes, that, that, that we call non-love. It is non-love that we're sharing and that we have learned to practice through the way we've created our culture of interaction and where we where we give what we give our attention and if we learn to deal with non-love whoa this would be a major this would be a major advance then in many ways healthcare could become a model of care and then health this model of care may be a model for peace in a way that we can learn to truly care for each other in a way where fear is not running the show and where a sense of being isolated isn't running the show, but an, a deep understanding of the actual connection that that is between everybody on this planet and that we actually learn to serve this connection. What is the difference between coming from fear and our physical health and immunity and coming from love and our physical health and immunity? When we are in fear, we're in stress mode. And when we're in stress mode, our immune system sh doesn't shut down, but it's definitely the regulation of the immune system is is uh, derailed. So we're more, more, we're more vulnerable to infections. If we live in a state of fear and stress, we're more likely to, to become ill. And if we are in a state of trust and connectedness, um, none of those suppressing elements of stress and fear are around and our immune system is more adaptive to our environment. More fluid. We're more fluid when we're not in fear, aren't we? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what have we learned from COVID-19 that can transform medicine? Let's, let's turn this one around. 
Mm. Well, it has highlighted a lot of system deficiencies and it has highlighted where we can improve. And one of the key ways that we can improve is um, to see that those who really care um, among the healthcare professionals are now, we've basically driven them to the wall. <laughs> mm -hmm. So this is, this is not acceptable that at the end of a pandemic, those who provide the care are at the end of their tether. So we have to see how the healthcare system can be more scalable. And we have to learn from all those just bluntly inhumane situations that happened around healthcare institutions um, now during the pandemic, where people were isolated in situations where they deserve to be together with their families, mm. for example. Um, this is just unacceptable. We can't claim that we're working in a healthcare system and we don't allow family members to come and visit a patient who is in a life-threatening situation, for example. It's just not human. <laughs> so as long as our rules and regulations and the administration, if you like, how well how, whatever well-intended it is, is really infringing on our basic humanness, we really need to go back to the drawing board. So mm -hmm. I think there, there are many lessons that can be learned when we go back to all the many situations that happened where, where people were left alone dying, when people were uh, left unsupported, um, subject to rules and regulations rather than actually taken care of in a way that, that every human being would actually do. <laughs> It seems like that was counterproductive because their health was suffering because of the isolation as much as the disease, would you say? Yeah, so both parts is this conversation. Both parts are understandable. Of course, we don't want whole families with lots of people with COVID coming onto an ICU where maybe half of them have COVID and the others don't. So we have even have more of the of the buck circulating. So from a hospital hygiene perspective, for example, it's very understandable, like rationally, it is understandable, but we have to find ways to to enable a human interaction when mm -hmm. when our rational constructs are actually in conflict with basic ethical and human values, we're we're missing something serious. Dr. Bonhoeffer, what is your mission? <laughs> I would like to see medicine evolve. I'd like to see medicine evolve to where the heart is welcome again and where love is accepted as a fundamental healing force. And I've worked with, you know, for example, the World Health Organization to as an advisor. And um, I would love, I, I have seen how, what the mechanisms are. And I'm teaching in universities and I've seen what the mechanisms are. And if the learnings from the last 20 years could help me bring this message to the World Health Organization and to the universities so that we can change the way we educate the next generations of, of healthcare professionals, I would believe firmly that our children and their children will have a different outlook to life and to care and to how we deal with illness and how we deal with, with death. So bringing heart back into educating our uh, healthcare practitioners. Yeah. So um, I believe it was Max Planck at the time who said hypotheses are not uh, uh, are not uh, disproven; they're they're dying out. So <laughs> I guess it's very difficult to change the current stakeholders in the system. Um, we can appeal to them, but uh, my uh, I would say my focus is on the next generation. <laughs> So I hope yeah. that we can that we can those those who are willing to hear and are resonating with the message um, now are more than welcome to join and co-create. Um, and those who are not jaded yet, um, I, that's where I put my hope on. Well, it's a beautiful place to put your hope. And um, having spoken to you for an hour, I am much more hopeful. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Dr. Bonhoeffer, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me.
It's been a real pleasure. Our guest this hour has been Dr. Jan Bonhoeffer, a global expert in infectious diseases and vaccine safety, pediatrician and former emergency physician. He is the author of Dare to Care, How to Survive and Thrive in Today's Medical World. His website, www.heartbasedmedicine.org. Remember, our entire information-packed past episode collection is available for listen or download free of charge. Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing collection of guests and topics. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka, coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com. Join us next time as the mission continues, bringing information, resources, and support to our evolving world. <laughs>